If the idea of a photo shoot makes you want to pack a bag and move to a faraway land never to be seen or heard from again, then you and I are two peas in a photophobic pod. But the truth is, if you have an online presence of any kind, having professional branded photos can seriously uplevel your business. I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't worth it and if I truly didn't believe it, my friend. So whether it's the camera you fear or the prep work that goes into planning the day, I've got your back with my free photo shoot planning guide. No matter if this is your first photo shoot or you're an old pro looking to streamline the process, this guide will help you find the perfect photographer, plan and organize the list of shots you'll need, and prepare for all the important but often forgotten day of details to ensure a smooth and successful photo shoot. And of course, I have a word of encouragement or two to help soothe any insecurities that may come up because I've been there. I get it. So head on over to amyporterfield.com forward slash photo shoot to grab your free guide and let's ditch those photo fears. amyporterfield.com forward slash photo shoot. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the Online Marketing Made Easy Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Porterfield, and I hope you are having a really, really good day. And I hope your day is going to get even better with this episode because I have to say it's a good one. Now, before we get into all the details about choosing the one thing that is going to keep moving you forward, I wanted to first give a listener review shout out to Jeffrey Lee. So Jeffrey Lee is in my online marketing made easy Facebook group. And this is what he said. I listened to your recent podcast with Jasmine Starr on mental health. It was difficult to not be overcome with emotion with your openness and honesty. Genuine authenticity is often difficult to find in the marketplace. We aim to present a tough, strong, powerful, and determined mindset to gain trust, growth, and more business. We fail to perceive how this one-sided view stymies our overall impact on the world around us. So let me just say thank you. Oh my gosh. First of all, Jeffrey has a way with words. And second of all, that was just so sweet to read Jeffrey. It made my day. And thank you so much for being a listener. Okay. So today we are talking about one of my most favorite books, The One Thing, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. Now, I wanted to bring on one of its authors, Jay Papasan, because I truly believe that the principles in this book are the difference between realizing your potential and true success and honestly just settling. Now, if you're listening, I know you're looking for something more. Like, I just know that my community, my listeners are always looking to up level. So if you're looking for something more, if you're looking to play a bigger game, if you're going for some really big goals that are scaring you, you, my friend, are in the right place right now. So Jay's curiosity about why some people get extraordinary outcomes and others do not help fuel his work with Gary Keller to write The One Thing, which has sold, are you ready for this? Over 1.3 million copies worldwide. And it's appeared on national bestseller lists more than 400 times, including number one on the Wall Street Journal's hardcover business list. That's pretty impressive. And it's been translated into 30 different languages. So I thought the one thing was particularly powerful for any beginning online entrepreneur, especially. I mean, it's great for any entrepreneur, but if you're just starting out, this one is a big one for you. Because when you're working your nine to five job, it's easy to get distracted, overwhelmed, and lose sight of the end goal. So if your online business is your side gig right now, or if you're just getting started and it's your full-time thing, feeling distracted and overwhelmed and stressed and just like totally all over the place with your ideas and your thoughts, then this book can change that for you. So with Jay and the one thing, I think you will feel a new sense of clarity, new sense of confidence, even a directed purpose to where you need to go. So I'm really excited to invite Jay on the show so I won't make you wait any longer. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. 
I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, this is truly a treat. And I feel like timing is everything. And I think this is the perfect time for you to come on the show and share the one thing with my listeners, particularly because so many of my students are in the trenches right now, right this minute, creating their first digital course. So it's a big undertaking. As you know, you guys have a digital course as well. So it's a big thing. And I think you just might be a lifesaver for so many people today. So again, thanks for being here. I can't wait to dive in. I'm super excited. And you know this, when people are building their first online course, it's almost always a side hustle. Yes. So they already had a full plate before they started. So all of the, the tasks and the priorities and competing, the one thing can really help there. Yes. For sure. So that's why I'm just truly excited to jump in. Now, I think that sometimes as online entrepreneurs, we feel that we have to do everything and be everything, especially when we're just starting out building our businesses. I always tease that I was on the yes train for years (laughs) before I jumped off. And so we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and we hear about the hustle and you've got to hustle and you got to show up every morning and you, you got to put your best foot out there. But right off the bat, I want you to kind of set the stage for us. What does it mean to have your one thing? So the interesting thing to us, I mean, one thing is just kind of exactly what most people think it is. It's your number one priority. It's the first thing that you should be doing. And I was afraid people wouldn't know what it was. And the more I've shared the book, the more I found out most people are pretty cognizant of what their one thing is, and they just feel guilty for not doing it. So I like to kind of talk about the one thing as at any given point of time, we we can only have one true priority. We might have a lot of them in general, like I've got teenage kids and aging parents, and you think about the adult life, your work requirements and your health requirements. Those are all priorities. But at any given moment, we can only have one And we need to be present and focused on that thing. So I like to think of the one thing as my most important work for the day for my job, my most important work with my kids today. And when you put it in that framework, it sometimes gets some of the fog out of the way for people. Oh, I like that. Your most important work. Okay. So I know in the book, you say it's easy to explain this, but tougher to buy into. But today, I really want to dive into some of the steps that my listeners can take to really embody this idea of the one thing. So can we start with your idea of the success list? I know when you say that, I know that you say a to-do list is really just a survival list to get through the day, which I have to-do lists, like I have nailed down the to-do list. So this was something I had to kind of read a few times and look at it a little bit differently. So what is a success list and what steps do I take to turn my to-do list into a success list? Well, I love this. And this is almost always where we lead off because even if people tune out after this, they'll at least get one thing that they can practically apply. (laughs) Right. They're not tuning out, but just in case. Yeah. (laughs) When I speak, when I speak to large groups, right, I'll I'll say like, who here works from a to-do list? And almost every hand will go up. So it's a pretty universal thing. We need some form of inventory of all the things that we know we need to do. And, you know, if you read the getting things done, you know, you've got to have a trusted source for recording those things. So you might have a physical list and somebody else might have an app. And the real problem with that is that it becomes fairly tyrannical. You start to look at this inventory of all the stuff that you have to do, and it can be very overwhelming because it's comprehensive. That's that's what's good about it and what's bad about it. So to take your to-do list and convert it to a success list, it's just two steps, and it takes about three minutes. Nice. I literally would get one of my coworkers. I bought him an egg timer, and I say, I'll give you five, but it should only take three minutes a day to do this. So you look at your to-do list. You start your timer. And then all you have to do is of all the things that you could do today, what are the handful that you really should do? And your time frame could be your week. It doesn't matter, your day, your week. Usually you'll see a list already go from about 25 things to five. Most of us know the Pareto principle, right? The 80-20 rule, about 20% of the stuff that we do is gonna give us 80% of our results. And I see the truth of that every single day. I wish I could prove it, but I believe like for business people, it should be like the law of gravity, right? We absolutely see the evidence everywhere. Even scientists struggle to explain how it works. 
but there it is, 80-20. You separate that stuff out. And the second step is you kind of go through the process of numbering them. If I only got one thing done today or this week, what would that thing be? And that becomes your number one. And then you ask, if I got my number one done and I still had time, what would my number two be? And that becomes your number two. And so you go from this kind of unsorted, unprioritized jumble of stuff to a very short list that's prioritized. And the beauty here for me, I just found it incredibly liberating once I figured this out. I can go into my to-do list, turn it into a success list. And if I only check off one thing for the entire day, I can go home feeling good about my day because I did my number one priority. Okay. And the other stuff I now know was not, it didn't matter as much. And the opposite is true. I can also go into my days without doing this and I can cross off 50 things and I'm in a lather. I've been, I've been so busy, right? I've been so busy, but activity and productivity are not the same thing. My wife will ask me, what did you get done today? And I'll be like, a lot of stuff, right? So to me, it's really identifying a couple of short steps to say, what are the true priorities? And then start there. Okay. Activity and productivity are not the same thing. I love that. We had, a, <laughs> we had a guest on a few weeks ago. Her name's Brooke Castillo. And she talked about doing something and actually producing something are two totally different things. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what she meant, what you just said there. So I love yes. that we're hitting home with that for sure. Now, here's something I want to back up a little bit. You say you look at this to-do list and you're going to circle the things that you should do. Talk to me about how do you know you should do it? What, what does that word should mean to you? Oh, yeah. And that's just a charged word. Like, you know, your principal or your mother said things like you should. And so yes. I don't want it to be feel that way. <laughs> I'll go back to Pareto's principle, the 80-20 rule. If you look at that list and what it's for, usually I have to separate my list on some level. My primary to-do list or success list is going to be around work. So I'm just going to use that as my example. Yeah, great. Of all the things that I could do, what's the one thing, right, that I should, or what's the one thing that I can do today, such that by doing it, everything else will be easier and necessary? That's the focusing question we use in the book. It's evoking this idea of what activity will get me the greatest return towards my goals. Mm. And I actually thought that that would be tough for people to figure out. But I've literally led thousands and thousands of people through this exercise, and nobody raises their hand and says, I just can't figure it out. If you show someone their list and say, what's really important here, can you identify the three or four things, maybe five, seven if you must, but break out the ones that are truly important and impactful for your job or whatever the category, they're going to know what they are. Because like I said, my big aha in publishing the book and teaching it was not that people didn't know what they were. People know what they are. They're just not building them into their daily work lives and they feel guilty about it all the time. Yes. Yes, I could totally relate to this. So I'm there with you. Okay, so I love the idea of the success list. I'm 100% implementing it now. And I'm really going to encourage you, if you're listening, to just give this a try. And I will tell you in the beginning, it all feels really important. And when I first did it, I thought, okay, this is not going to work. And you're right, Jay, I sat with it a little bit and I pushed myself a little bit more. And for some reason, it's like, I just got clarity. Like, let's be honest with ourselves here. Like what's really going to drive me forward. And at the end of the day, make me feel really accomplished. It was very easy once I kind of sat with it a little bit. So I'm there you're dead on. You. And that's great coaching. Cause here's the reality. If you've identified the five out of the 25, and you really honestly don't know what the number one is, but because now you only have five things to do, you get them all done over the course of the week, it didn't actually matter which one you did first. Yes. Over time and with experience, you'll know which one matters first. But in the beginning, at least you're working from the handful of things that are truly impactful versus all the trivial stuff that just takes up your time. That's where the beauty of this comes through. So I hope you guys really heard Jay there because that's exactly what I felt for sure. Okay, so I'm moving us along because in the book, this is a big one for me. I talk about this a lot. Another lie that you talk about in the book is this idea of multitasking. And I love that you call it a lie because I've been telling my listeners for years 
that switching your attention back and forth is a recipe for just wasting your energy. So talk to me a little bit about the challenge with this idea of task switching. What's funny is when I think it's it's kind of out there now, people still do it unapologetically. Right. When we were preparing to publish this book in 2013, you could go on monster.com, right? That was still the king of job sites. And one of the little boxes you could check to make yourself more attractive to employers was good at multitasking. <laughs> yes, you're so right. I forgot that. And it was like, it was all like you'd pick up Fast Company and it's how to multitask better. And it was something people wore as a badge of honor. And we suspected it was a lie. In Gary's personal experience, my co-author, Gary Keller, he's built a billion dollar company. He's like, it doesn't work. And so we asked our researchers to find some, some truth to back that up. So we went in with the bias, but overwhelmingly, we found it to be true. So there's a guy named Clifford Nass. Um, and in 2009, he did a study about multitasking. And he was a little bit like Gary and a little bit like me. I tend to focus more than not. That's kind of my nature. And I'm not good at multitasking. In fact, I'm pretty horrible at it. <laughs> and he was feeling guilty. He was feeling like these people are super people. Look at all the stuff that they're doing. And he wanted to actually figure out what they did so well. So he did a study with a bias, believing that multitasking existed and that it was a good thing and just wanted to discover why it was good. So he put, I think, 260 students in a room. Half of them said, I'm great at multitasking. Half of them said, I'm horrible at it. And he gave them a battery of six tests, including one on actually multitasking. And when he wrote about this in the New York Times, the line that stuck out for me is that everyone was shocked by the results because multitaskers were, quote, suckers for irrelevancy. They were lousy at everything, even multitasking, the very thing they thought they were good at. So the first big proof that came back is there's this large body of research and they don't call it multitasking. You use the right word. They call it switch tasking. When you alternate back and forth your focus between two tasks, you always will have more errors and perform more poorly than you would if you focused on one. And there, I mean, I could go on, I've taught whole seminars just on this one topic, but the other research, and I'll just hit you with two more facts. Great. It takes you 28% longer or 100% longer, depending on the complexity of the task, when you start bouncing back and forth. So you've got one screen up and you've got your social media and your other screen up's got your work and you're bouncing forth between your Google newsfeed and your writing. And it's all fun. Well, scientists will tell you it takes up a lot more time to do your work that way than just to shut down, put your computer on lockdown and just focus on the one task. And if I could give you back on the low end, 28% of your work week, what would you do with it? Uh. I would just love it. <laughs> <laughs> would you go home and read a book on a rainy day? Or would you put in a few extra hours and, and get a new course out there? Like, it's your choice. But when we multitask, that choice is taken from us. And the last one, this is a study that came out or we discovered after the fact. There was a guy at King's College that did a survey of three different IQ test surveys. So it was a survey of surveys. And they had a group of people who take an IQ test while focused a group of people who take an IQ test while stoned on marijuana, and another group that had taken an IQ test while having to juggle phone calls and emails, multitasking. Okay. <laughs> and so the reason we know about this, it made headlines, is unsurprisingly, the focused people on average scored about 11 IQ points higher than the other two groups. And that's a, a giant leap in intelligence. It's yes. not a small amount. It's a big amount. What shocked people is the people who were stoned <laughs> on average, scored six IQ points higher than the people who were multitasking. Okay, stop it. Are you making this up? <laughs> no, no, you can look it up. King's College 2009. It's a survey of IQ test. Oh, and my goodness. This is crazy. It's not an excuse to join the marijuana group, even <laughs> right? though that is legal now in Canada and a few other places, right? I'm not, especially if I'm talking to teenagers, I have to be careful how I talk about this. Right, right. But the three things come together, right? It, it makes you less effective. You make more mistakes. It takes you longer and it dumbs down your work. And when we're going back to our first priority, our most important work, why in the world we want to bring those three things to it? To make it last longer, be less effective and be dumber. Okay, that study is insane. And the part that I picked up the most is when you said you dumbed down your work. And I take a lot of pride in my work. So right when you said that, I was like, ouch, I do not want to be a part of that. 
Now, I have been talking about this whole idea of switching tasks, and I know it's important, and I genuinely make an effort not to do it. However, I have one terrible habit. Actually, it's two habits. And this is what you've said here is really going to stay in my mind as I do this. One thing is I always have my iPhone near me when I'm working on something on my computer. And right now I am creating a course. So I'm working on the outline and working on the content. And I just pick up my phone for no reason whatsoever. When I get (laughs) stuck on something like it's not flowing easily, I pick up my phone and I gravitate toward Instagram. I love looking at Instagram. I use it a lot, but I keep telling myself with somebody that's just crushing it in their online business, look at Instagram every five minutes when they get stuck on what they're working on. Obviously not. Right. So if it makes you feel better, they paid really brilliant engineers at Apple and Google and Instagram, bajillions <laughs> of dollars to make that phone be so attractive to you. Okay, good right? point. They have good engineered point. it towards your 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 baser instinct. So I'll, I'll take you completely off the hook. I know you said <laughs> <Yeah>. two things. <laughs> okay, but- I'm putting, I'm going to put the phone out of reach though. I think I okay. genuinely have to do it. That's how bad it is. But I appreciate you saying that you are right. That there's a reason it's addictive. They, they want it to be. So that's one. And then the other one is I just autom- it's very scary to me because I automatically, when I'm working on something and it starts to feel a little bit uncomfortable or difficult, I click on the icon to check my email. And mm-hmm. I don't even, I don't even have that many emails I have to deal with during the day. Like I have an assistant, but I just click it and I just look. It, it's ridiculous. Well, all right. I'm going to go back to taking you off the hook. So okay. first off, so engineers have programmed those devices to make them very attractive. That's why that little red circle with a number that keeps getting bigger shows yes. up, right? It's to create anxiety so that you'll open up your email app. Even if it just says one, you're like, well, I wonder who that's from. Yep. The other part is you're programmed to notice it. If we weren't programmed to notice things happening in the background, our ancestors would have never made it out of the savannah, right? <laughs> they would point. have never seen the saber-toothed tiger sneaking <laughs> up on them in the grass. So it's a survival thing that doesn't serve us well when it's doing dings and feed your plant or dinosaur on some electronic game. So it is one of those things that absolutely is totally normal that you're suffering through this. So here would be my solution. On the radical end of things, you could say, hey, I'm going to delete my email app and my Instagram app for my phone. My wife has done that. I love it. Brendan Bouchard talks about that when he's writing. He does not have any of those apps on his computer. And well, you can also, there's programs you can get that'll shut those down on your computer, not actually delete them. Okay. You could still go through your Safari app to both of them, right? And do those things if it was really important, but it puts a few barriers between you and just the quick check. It's just a quick check. Okay. The other one is only practice this no multitasking rule in the beginning when you're doing your number one. So if you look at your success list and your number one that day is to complete chapters one and two on your course, well, for that period of time, treat it like you're going to an opera. Put your phone on do not disturb and put it out of your reach. And we can go into more detail on those strategies, but you can just do it in the beginning when you're doing your number one. See if you don't feel a lot more effective and start doing it at other times as well. But at the very least, when you're doing number one, that's a great time to say, you know what, this is a no Instagram time for me. It's so good. I love baby steps. I'm going to do that for sure. I'm going to put the phone on silent out of reach, even if it's just a little farther than it is now, so I can't quickly reach it. I'll at least break the habit. I'll look for it and then I'll just kind of come back to what I'm doing. So this is big for me. I appreciate you kind of walking me through it and making me feel not so guilty like I'm crazy in the head that I can't even not check my phone. So I appreciate that. Okay. It's a big one for all entrepreneurs. Oh, it's such a big one. Okay. So I love everything you're saying. This is, I know my audience is listening like, oh my gosh, I needed to hear this. And The next thing I want to talk to you about is this idea of discipline because it works perfectly into even what we're talking about here. So in the book, you talk about how sometimes it's easy to mix up what discipline really means. So one of my best friends was just talking to me about how she wanted to get back into running and she wants to do this half marathon. But she said to me, Amy, I just lack the discipline to do it. But 
when I heard that, I thought about what you said. You say it's not really about having discipline, why she's not doing that, right? That's right. I think we misinterpret what the word actually means. I mean, we use it in a vernacular the way we should be using a word like willpower, which is our ability to focus on things even when we don't want to. Like, I'm going to use my brain power, my willpower to focus. Discipline, it's funny, you ask a kid what discipline means, what are they going to tell you? Punishment, right? You ask an adult and they think it's willpower and they're kind of both off. The actual definition is training yourself to do something until it's habitual. And the story that I've told about this for going on four years now is when I was first teaching the book, I was going out to promote it right after it came out. I was speaking in Nashville. I think our our seminar started at 9 a.m. And I show up, of course, like 90 minutes early to do the sound checks. And there's a guy sitting on the front row. And I'm just kind of trying to be a nice kind of, you know, semi-guest host, whatever I was. And I went up and introduced myself and asked if he was part of the crew. And he goes, no, um, I'm just early. (laughs) And it's a habit. And he said that habit word. I was like, okay, well, tell me more about that. And he said, well, for nine years, I was a Green Beret. It was over a decade ago. But I was trained to show up early and observe before I act. And I just can't shake the habit. It drives my wife crazy. (laughs) I mean, I, I think the inverse of that, showing up early, showing up late, would also drive your spouse crazy. Right, right. But, but this a soldier is like a perfect example. He was trained to do something until he didn't have to think about doing it anymore. So when we are trying to talk about how to use discipline, what we want to change that to is kind of make it about having a selected discipline and building a habit. So you work to build a habit towards your goals, and then that habit will work for you. So like your friend that wants to run a marathon, that was my first experience and kind of like logging miles, running a marathon in 1997 in New York, logging just every day I had my one thing and it was my mileage. And if I just kept doing that one thing every day, you look up and three months later, you're running a marathon, which is kind of incredible when you think about it. It doesn't happen overnight. It's something that you have to work on building the habit of being the person who runs every day. And so habit becomes the real success. So I'll pick on Instagram. The most Instagram quote in our book is by a guy named F.M. Alexander. It says, people don't decide their futures. They decide their habits and their habits decide their futures. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. It hits you in the gut, doesn't it? It does. So we tell people, figure out what your one thing is. Is there an activity, right, that would lead to your accomplishing it naturally? If the answer is yes, then go make that activity a habit. So that every day, it's automatic. It's like brushing your teeth, right? I have two teenage kids, a 12-year-old, almost 13-year-old, and a 14-year-old. And I can tell you for a fact, I didn't know this until I was a parent, that it takes years of training to get your kids to have the habit of brushing their teeth without being told. As adults, you and I don't have to think about it. I can stumble in to the bathroom at 4 a.m. on a travel day and still remember to brush my teeth because of that work that my parents invested in my dental health back when I was a kid. Yes. So the same thing can apply in other areas of your life. You can become the person who gets up and the first thing they do is they go run their mileage. That's how it works. And so I won't go into all the details, but there's a lot of misinformation around forming habits. Everyone says it takes 21 or 30 days. We had two full-time researchers helping us. There is zero evidence that that, those statements are true. In fact, we found books that were referencing each other and they were circular references. <laughs> okay. And so like everybody was referencing each other's books, but nobody had an original source. And so there's a group in Australia that actually did the research. They asked a group of graduate students to take on a new habit and then track them for an entire year asking two questions. Did you do it? And how hard was it? And they found on average, it takes about 66 days to form a habit. Oh, that's much longer than you typically hear. Exactly the point. Yeah. (laughs) 66 is great. I mean, but it's average. If you're quitting smoking, I can guarantee you it'll take a lot longer, but it might take you less time. But the point is for most people it's taking two to three times longer than they expect to actually have the habit stick. So they stop focusing on it and giving it energy too soon. And therefore they don't form the habit. That's Mm -hmm. why most New Year's resolutions just fall apart in February. Okay. So this makes perfect sense to me. It's all about the habit. And I want to look at some of the things that I've been doing and really identify the habit. Say that quote one more time. It was so good. 
Okay, FM Alexander, and I might be paraphrasing slightly. I don't have it completely memorized, it's but still good. People don't decide their futures; they decide their habits, and their habits decide their futures. I mean, come on, guys, that's so good. Look at your habits. Where do you need to show up in different ways? Now, you do have an antidote to tell about Jerry Seinfeld and this idea of not breaking the chain. Can you tell us that one? Love that one. I, I read about this first on the website. I think it's called Life Hacker. There was an engineer who was trying to become a comic. And back in the day when Jerry Seinfeld would still do a lot of like shows, just open mic shows, he would still show up. He was already Jerry Seinfeld, but he would still just kind of, you could just go into a comedy club sometimes and he would be back there. So this engineer runs into him and works up the courage to go up and says, hi, Mr. Seinfeld, I want to become a comedian. What should I do? And I love Seinfeld's answer. said, it's easy Go buy yourself a calendar, the ones that like you put on the wall that are kind of like laminated yeah. that has all the days of the year and every day write a joke. And every day that you write a joke, you put a red X over that day. And pretty soon it won't be about writing a joke every day. It'll be about not breaking the chain. And I love this on so many levels. One, it plays into this idea of building a habit. It plays into baby steps. He didn't say write a comedy act every day right? Or write a hit sitcom every day. He said, write one joke. We call that your smallest domino in our book. That was our metaphor, lining up your dominoes. Just knock over that domino every day. And with time, you'll get better and stronger as that habit grows. So it's building the habit. And there's a free apps out there called Don't Break the Chain. There's like 20 of them. We have a calendar, a 66-day challenge calendar on our website. Whatever you do, whether you like a piece of paper that you draw next or you want an app, It's a great way to kind of build that reward system. I love it. Right now I'm meditating. Um, That's one of the things I'm trying to build a habit of doing. And every day I get to go on my Don't Break the Chain app and I get to hit the little X saying that I did it. It's kind of a reward, a little dopamine burst along the way. So it is kind of a fun thing to feel progress in a long process. Oh, I am all about this. I'm super competitive with myself. So I like to see those red X's that really does something for me. So I'm 100% going to do this. I love that story. Thanks for that. Okay, so I'm switching gears here. And this next topic is one that is near and dear to my heart. So I have been talking to my audience a lot lately about this idea of going bigger and up-leveling and really stepping into what you were made to do. And so I had a live event recently and I had one full talk all about this idea of knowing that you are meant to be a big deal and going big in the world. And so one of the principles that really hit home for me was this idea that people fear becoming big and you have a name for it. You call it megaphobia. And because I think sometimes my students fear going big, or I don't think, I know they do. Like you said in the book, staying where we are feels prudent, but the opposite is true. When big is believed to be bad, small thinking rules the day and big never sees the light of it. Oh, I love this. Okay. So what are some ways that you can live big? So first, I'm just going to address megaphobia. Yes, I have like my dreams in life. And it's one of those things that maybe I'm thinking small, maybe a little outside my control, but I'm trying to make it happen, is I would love to be creator, the creator of a new word for the English language. So <laughs> I can remember when we were playing around with this, writing megaphobia, looking it up and making sure there wasn't already a phobia around this. And I'm, I'm hoping it sticks. That's right? so Let's good. Go out there and maybe I'll find, you know, the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary someday with my name in it. Crossing my fingers for you. (laughs) Okay. So how can we live big? What's funny is most entrepreneurs, like they think they don't have a problem with this. In fact, our publisher, who was one of the best business publishers of all time, he wanted to cut this whole chapter. Mm -hmm. He's like, what in the world? This is a book. It's a business book. It's a self-help book. Like these people don't have a problem thinking big. And we're like, well, you've never coached anyone. And the, the challenge that happens is when people first start to experience some success, you know, they've conquered this idea of the to-do list and they're doing their success list and they're not multitasking when they do it. And they've built a habit of doing the thing that really matters for their business. Well, they look up after a few months or a year and success is coming at them fast and they absolutely will start shutting down. You'll hear things like, you know, I just want a small, comfortable business. I don't want to become a bad parent. They'll start creating excuses about how big is a very bad thing for their life. 
And a lot of the time, it's because they have no good role models on how to live a balanced life in that big arena. So first and foremost, if you don't have kids, talk to yourself like you were your own parent. Like you would never tell your child, you know, I just want you to have an average life where you don't have to worry about failure. You can have an average marriage. You can go on average vacations and have average kids, right? <laughs> like nobody has that speech with their kids. Right. We want them to dream big and we have to kind of take that advice ourselves. And the beauty of this is if you can detach yourself from the outcome, you know, I want to write a course that sells 100,000 copies or whatever. Well, great. If you start with that goal, you'll be asking bigger questions. You'll be using bigger business models. You'll be seeking out better mentors and relationships to get it done, all because you've started with as big as you could think. If you start with something really small, the habits, the relationships, the models you'll use will all be tied to that goal. And if you surprise yourself and grow bigger, you'll go through one of those periods that we hear about all the time. I just have to reinvent my business. Mm. And when you hear that, that's a code word for I didn't think big enough. You know, I have to top grade my assistant. I didn't think big enough. I hired for my existing pain, not for where I was going. And so you've just got to think big. And sometimes I just be honest, we can't do this all by ourselves. We need our spouse, our coach, our mentor to help kind of prod us and ask things like, you know, is that the best you can do or is that the best can be done? You know, are you really reaching for it here? That's been in 18 years of my working with Gary Keller. The number one thing he's pushed me and my wife Wendy to do is to think bigger for our lives. Every single time I think we're thinking big, he will point to a bigger picture that we're not, we're not able to look at yet. And because he points us there, we set bigger goals and we fail a lot. But because we fail and we're aiming so high, we're going so much farther and faster than we would otherwise. Oh, so true. Okay. I absolutely love this idea. I never thought of it this way in terms of if you set a goal, those big, scary goals that feel way too big, you are showing up differently in order for that to happen versus I tend to play it safe with my goals. Like I am, I'm very blessed and lucky with my business, but I'll set a revenue goal for, let's say, a promotion, and I don't set it too high. Well, in the past, I wouldn't set it too high because I didn't want to be disappointed. And then I would meet it, and I'd be like, look at me. I'm a superstar. But holy cow, if I really pushed myself, I'd show up different during my launches and during you know planning on the promotion. So to me, you just offered such a big gift of how you look at those big goals. And I also want to point out, guys, that I'm going to link to this in the show notes, when I talked about Brooke Castillo, you guys know I'm just a fan of her podcast. And she talks about when you set a big goal and you have all these, what she calls obstacle thoughts that are come up, like, I can't do that. What about this? What about that? And this won't work because of this or that. And she has this podcast episode I'm going to link to where she says, one, that's normal. And two, you're going to tackle each of those objections that your mind's coming up with and that you, you still are setting these really big goals and it's okay to be scared of them. So anyway, I just love what you said about that. And I want to point out that you had mentioned that you have a partner that helps you set bigger goals. I have a coach that she'll say, really, is, is that as big as you can go? I agree with you that we need people in our lives that will push us to bigger goals. I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I've got my partner, Gary, right? The, you know, he's a self-made billionaire. And most people would think, well, that's all you need. Right. That's a good, good guy to have in your ring. <laughs> yeah, it's great. But I also, I actually pay a coach to get on the phone with me every two weeks for an hour and push my thinking. And I've given my wife, who's my partner in, in my whole life, right? Yeah. Permission to call me on my BS. Okay. That's and good. we've done that for each other. So I kind of think of myself as having three full-time coaches, which can be excruciating on your worst <laughs> days, but it definitely is a gift the rest of the time. Yes, guys. So look at your environment. Do you have people that will call you on your BS? Or if you don't, give someone you love and someone that knows you well permission to do so. I have to do that with my husband, Hobie. I need to tell him, like, I'm on this weight loss journey right now. And the other day, 
I'm feeling really good about it. But I said, babe, if you see me backsliding, I need you to call me on it. And he gave me this look like, oh no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) And I said, this is the most important thing in my life right now. Getting this weight off and feeling good and healthy, it is truly my one thing. And so I said, I need somebody that's going to call me on it. Please, I'm asking you, no matter if I get frustrated or upset or sad for the moment, it's the biggest gift you can give me. But if I didn't tell him that, Jay, he would have never, because that's a sensitive topic. It is. And I love that you had the wisdom to give him permission. And yeah. I, I have this, my wife and I run businesses together. And I have to remember my first hat is as a husband. Yes. And I want, that's more important to me. So like, you know, I'm not, if we play golf together, I am not about to become her golf coach. <laughs> good man, good man. The winning, winning in the world of golf and winning in life, you know, the, the gap is too great. <laughs> but for the things that matter to her a lot and she gives me permission, I will occasionally wear the hat of the coach and step in and say, hey, honey, I thought we said we were going to eat differently. Yeah. Why don't we both order the salad and we'll, you know, we'll cheat and we'll do this together. And like, you just work together. You find that rhythm. Yeah. Um, the, the whole idea of a professional coach, I don't, I hardly ever go there, but because you have one. I do. One of the things that we found, we were looking into the idea of do written goals really matter? And we found some research that suggests that when you write your goals down, you're about, I, I'm going to get a number off by like a percentage point, like 30% more likely, 36% more likely to achieve your goals. And that old, you know, song about the people who wrote down their goals before they graduated from Harvard made more than everyone else. Like we called Harvard and Yale, that that never existed. But the idea of it is so true, we believe it. And there is a lady who did that research, 36% more likely. While we were in that same Dominican University research, they also had a secondary part of the study. If someone shared their goals with someone else and had to report their progress on a weekly basis, they were 77% more likely to achieve their goals. Wow. And I was like, whoa, I get chills even saying it. I was like, that's like two and a half times, right? Yes. The probability of success. And that's a very low form of coaching. All you're doing is reporting progress. Yes. Oh, guys, we got to remember that one. To have that relationship that you show up and say, I'm moving forward to. Ugh, that is so good. Let's remember that to this idea of reporting. You're right. You don't even need to have a professional coach, coach that you pay for but that you could still do this action item. So, oh, so good. Okay, so since we're talking about goal setting, I was hoping that we could talk about a goal setting exercise that you talk about in the book. And it's the version that you have is called goal setting to the now, which seems like just a tweak at first, but it's really something much more meaningful. So with your method, it's a simple way of thinking to help avoid distractions and keep us on the right path. So can you walk me through it, starting with your someday goal? Sure. And I've got to say, this is the skill thing that I learned in the process of researching the book from Gary. Um, I don't know where he learned it. This is something that's very original to his life. And I just wish I'd learned it younger. And I've made a real commitment with the young people in my life, my kids included, to teach them this skill because it really enables what we were talking about earlier. Like, how do we think big? Goal setting to the now is one of the ways that makes that feel more likely and possible to do that. And the, the whole crux of it is, I remember Gary looking at me when we were trying to write this section and goes, Jay, why do, we, why do we even set goals? And I gave him some bad answer, right? You know, so we know where we're going or whatever. And he goes, no, the answer is we only set goals so we know how to be appropriate in the moments that matter. Mm. And I was like, oh, you know, okay, so let's unwrap that. And there's this really kind of complicated economic idea. It's called hyperbolic discounting. That's simple to explain, though. If I offered you $100 today or $200 tomorrow, you'd wait a day and take $200. But if I changed just one element, the time frame, $100 today or $200 a year from today, you're still doubling your money. Guaranteed, almost no one will wait the year. Right. And the the thing that happens is the farther in the future a reward is, the less influence it has over our actions today. So we tend to make, we have grandiose plans and big plans take time to accomplish. But because they're so far in the future, we don't know how to behave today, much less this week or this month. So goal setting to the now, here's the framework. You write down, you know, based on like your, your big health objective, 
maybe it's someday I want to run the five marathons to, to use your friend's marathon example. There's five big marathons that people will try to check off like mountain peaks. Say someday I want to have achieved that goal. Say, great. Based on that, what's the one thing that you will have to accomplish in five years to feel like you're absolutely on track? And you get someone to write that down. Say, great. Well, maybe I'll have to have knocked out the Boston, the New York marathons. Great. Okay. Based on your five-year goal, not your someday, you're going down a step. Based on your five-year goal, what's the one thing that you would need to accomplish this year to feel like you were absolutely on track for your five-year goal? And they give you that answer. So maybe it's just, I'll, I'll have trained and qualified for the New York Marathon. Great. So you write that down. Well, based on your one-year goal, not your five or your someday, you're moving down the chain. Based on your one-year goal, what's the one thing you would have to accomplish this month to feel like you're absolutely on track for that goal? And then you write that down. So maybe it's, I got to buy a new set of shoes and get a running coach. Great. Awesome. Well, based on your monthly goal, what's the one thing that you have to do this week to feel like you're absolutely on track for your monthly goal? Well, I have to start Googling running coaches or running groups and make sure I schedule time to go to the shoe store to buy my new running shoes. Great. Awesome. So based on your weekly goal, what's the thing that you have to do today to feel like you're absolutely on track for your weekly goal? And then they write that down. And it could be whatever it is. The point is, is that you're changing the time frame very systematically and working backwards from a goal. And it's playing a trick. If I asked you, Amy, you know, in the last 10 years, you've done 270 episodes of your show. What were the big moments of truth that led you to your amazing success? And you would probably rattle off a series of milestones when you look back at your life. You had a high school teacher who told you you could do it. And you had this experience in college and you met this person out of college and then blah, 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 blah. But you would tell me the stepping stones and they would be kind of in a straight line when we look back. The problem is if I say, hey, I want to run five marathons and I look forward, what I have to do this week or this month, there's like a million options. Yes. So the trick is to go into the future and look back. And that's that whole process is you're kind of cheating time. You're getting as clear as you can about where you want to be and then looking back from that time and you're drawing a straight line and it just eliminates a whole bunch of false bunny trails. And I can tell you, having done this year after year after year with my wife and our goal setting, that it is absolutely magical and you're guessing what to do like in five years, like nobody has a crystal ball, but it's a crazy how accurate you are. Like you might be within this window of about 20% accurate. Well, that's great. You eliminated 330 degrees of wrong. <laughs> so true. You know, it, it, it just, it brings things so much more down to focus. And by the end of year one, you're so much clearer about what you have to do by year five, that as you maintain those goals and keep pushing them forward, you get more and more clarity and they get more and more accuracy. So it's a, it's a I don't know where Gary got it, we did, he didn't even, you know, he couldn't tell me the origin story of that one, but he's been doing that automatically for most of his adult life. I've seen him do it a thousand times. We just broke it down and made it a system, goal setting to the now in the book. And I, I'm absolutely passionately adherent to that process. My wife and I do it every single year. We go out of town, we go on a retreat for a day and a half, and we set our someday and five-year goals. And based on that, where we want to be the next year. Ah. Uh. So good. I love this. I'm absolutely going to do this for the next year. So as I start planning for the upcoming year. So this is so good. Okay. I, it's so funny <laughs> because my passion. I I, yes. And I a little soapboxy. I know, but I love I feel it strongly about that process. It works. And, and I can feel that it makes me want to embrace it even more. So I love that. And it's funny because when we were preparing for this episode, I had help from Gina, who's on my team. And she said the same thing that I was thinking like, oh my gosh, we could talk about a million different things. This book is so good. And there's so many things we wanted to drill down into. And I know I only have a certain amount of time. And so I wanted to make sure you talked about the goal setting because this whole concept of the now was very, very relevant to my my listeners. So I'm glad we got that in. And I want to get one more thing in before I let you go. And that is this idea of time blocking. Now I talk about batching your workload and blocking out time on your calendar, but you're taking it to a whole new level. And I'm very excited about this. And I want you to talk about it. But here's what surprised me. 
first of all, you got to tell us about time blocking in case someone hasn't read the book, but also the amount of time you're suggesting seems like a lot. So talk to me about that. (laughs) (laughs) It it does. It does. All right. So what's time blocking? Time blocking is simply uh, making an appointment with yourself to do your most important work. And I remember the first time I interviewed with Gary, it was in the summer of 2002. I'd already worked in his company for about two years and change. The first thing he asked when I walked into his office was, can I look at your calendar? And this is 2002. I think I had a Palm Pilot, but people didn't do the full electronic thing. I I had like a little checkbook size week at a glance in my back pocket. Yeah. And he started flipping through it. It was very important to him that I be the kind of person that made appointments with myself versus just with other people. And I had no idea that was a part of the interview before I went in there, but that was a fundamental belief about success for him. And luckily I'm kind of an introvert and I didn't go to lunch with a lot of people. So my calendar was just my task list. That was basically what it was. So I passed that test, but it was just by luck in my nature. So time blocking, you look at millionaires, Gary Keller and other people. I've done this every chance I get to sit down with like a CEO or someone do you block time just to do your work? And the answer I come back with is often yes, and often very much the way Gary describes it. So that's the idea. You're making an appointment, not with someone else, but with yourself. And there's a little side note of beauty around this. If you've blocked off four hours tomorrow to work on your new course, and I call you up, hey, Amy, I'm in San Diego. Let's go get brunch. You can now say, Jay, hey, I love that you're in town. I already have another commitment tomorrow from nine to one, could we go out afterwards for a late lunch? And it immediately gives you an out so that you can protect that time. So that's time blocking. Why four hours? <laughs> it's funny, is it, Gary was teaching this before we wrote the book. And I remember in the beginning, it was two hours, and then it became three hours, and then it became four hours. And I asked him about that. And if you want to accomplish big things, you generally need big blocks of time to do it, especially if it's creative work. But I found it to be true for people working on any kind of big projects, whether it be budgets, programming. You can do the sprints, but this idea of having a big block of time, it allows you to show up. It allows you to be kind of unproductive for part of that time, which we often are. Like I'm preparing to get ready, right? I've got to get my outline ready before I can write. And you know what? I need to read some in Google and and, and grab all the books I'm going to reference. And so there's preparing to get work. Then there's the work. And then there's the unwinding at the end of it. It's almost like there's three periods in that four hours. You're giving yourself a big block of time so that it's the hope, like if you net an hour of productivity out of there, but you're doing that every single workday, you're going to be miles ahead of the rest of the world because most of the world is going out there. Their calendar is almost exclusively given to other people. So they're going from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting. And when do they do the most important work? At 9.30, after they put the kids to bed, they're on the couch while their spouse is watching Netflix, and they're on their laptop. So you block that time, and it's like putting a rock in the river. Everything will flow around it if you're insistent around that. And I usually tell people, baby steps, like if you're not ready to go the full four hours, start with an hour, right? If we're talking about your professional one thing, and build on that. Build the habit of showing up every day at 9 a.m. or 8 a.m. and just plugging away for an hour. And you'll start adding to that time as you get more confident that you'll show up and work. But the magic happens. I mean, this book wouldn't be here if Gary and I for years hadn't blocked four hours a day. For us, it was 10 to 2. We both had, he has so many businesses going. He needed two hours to kind of clear the decks before we could even go into a place where we could lock the door and say, go away. It's ideal to start your day because there's fewer distractions earlier in the day and you have more willpower. That's all secondary stuff. But it's a big block of time because you're trying to do big stuff around your one thing. And it gives you time to be less productive, but still get the outcomes that you need. Oh, so good. Okay. So a few quick things here. I'm creating this program right now and I do my best work when if I have four hours I just don't feel so stressed to get it all done. Like I can ease into it and think and have the space. So I I actually totally understand the four hours. One thing that I've learned is that if I want to block off big time like that, if I look at my calendar this week, next week, even the week after, I'm like, there's no way I could never do this because of all this stuff I already have scheduled. What I've learned though, is that just 
skip to the next month. Make it a commitment that starting the next month, this is going to be something you do. And your calendar is more free to just get it all set up in advance, but then block it out for the rest of the six months or the rest of the year or whatever it might be. So I have to look way ahead to get that on my calendar because if I look today and wanted to get it on tomorrow, it would never work. I love that you said that because we don't want people time blocking every single thing, right? That becomes crazy and robotic and we need to have buffer time. You know, I usually have 30 minutes before I go into my writing block and 30 minutes after that I batch all my emails and social media stuff because that creates anxiety for me. Yes. And I want to have be free of that before I go in. And I want to know that the first thing I'm allowing myself to do when I come out is deal with all the urgent but maybe unimportant stuff that might be happening in my email inbox. So your idea of batching comes in around your one thing time, but you don't time block everything. The three things we encourage people to start with, number one is vacation time. One, Americans just don't take it. Right. And if you're on a long journey, remember someday goal, it has a five-year five goal along the way. These are big goals in your life. That's a marathon. You need to rest and recuperate. And the beautiful thing is if you start your calendar for 2019, right, and you look and say, you know what, I'm going to commit to taking three weeks of vacation and you block it off. Gary blocks off like seven or eight weeks. Oh, love and it. I'll ask him. I said, hey, I see that um, you're gone for, you know, a, a week at the end of April. Where are you going? He goes, I don't know yet, but I think I'll need it. <laughs> that is so good. I'm going to do that for sure. So first is vacation. And you may not know where you're going, but if you block that time, you can, it's like putting that rock in the river. Your work will flow around it. I, I get all of my team to do this at the beginning of the year. I'm in Austin. We have Austin City Limits. They're millennials. They're going to want to take work days off to go hear Paul McCartney or whoever's playing. Yes. I get it. If you think you're going to go, we can plan for that in January. And if you decide not to, we get that day back. But don't show up to me on a Thursday before the Friday that Paul McCartney's playing <laughs> and saying, boss, I got a ticket. Can I skip work tomorrow? Now you've put me in a horrible place where I have to either be the ogre or I have to do your work for you because we didn't prepare for this. So plan your vacations in advance. When you do that, bosses almost never say no. And if they do, you kind of find out who you're working for. Two, you have to time block your one thing. So sometime in November or December, I will get a copy of Gary's calendar for the next year. And on that calendar for the next year, he will have identified, at least through August, the days he thinks we'll be writing together. So that's one of the first things that goes on my calendar for the next year is here are my writing blocks and everything else has to flow around it. And the third one is planning time. Each week and each month, there needs to be at least 30 minutes where you're looking at your goals and you're looking at your calendar and saying, based on where I plan to be at the end of this year, do I have enough time block this month or this week to do my one thing? And what you're doing is you're making some appointments go away and you might be adding time or you're ahead of the game, right? And you can increase your goals. But that regular check-in between your goals and your calendar, and the calendar is kind of where the rubber hits the road, is how time blocking actually gets you to move forward towards your goals. So good. So vacation, your one thing and your planning. You got it. Okay. I'm going to do it. And that's so clear and so easy to kind of com compartmentalize. So I love that. Okay, like I said, I could literally talk to you for many more hours, but I'm sure you've got some things to do. So with that, before I let you go, will you let my listeners know of just that one thought that you might have that you know could help move them forward and help solidify everything that they've learned in this episode? No pressure or anything, but I guess just final thoughts. Probably about six or seven years ago, I was at an event. I was in the audience and Gary was on stage and... He had interviewed three of our the top business people in our real estate system, and they were all had been in the business for five years or less, and they were just knocking it out of the park. And he said something, and I remember writing it down, and I put it on my whiteboard, and I posted it to my Facebook account, and all these things. I just I wanted to retain this thought. He said, folks, no matter where you are today, you can achieve anything you can imagine in five years. Mm. In five years, you can go from zero to knocking it out of the park. And that statement, right, that anything's possible in five years, really, really stuck with me. And I think there's this idea, we often exaggerate, right? We, we think we can get a lot more done in a year than it's actually possible. Amen. Yes, you're right. <laughs> but we underimagine what's possible for us in five. So and it sounds true. like it's a long time. 
But if you steadily work towards something, you can become a master in five years. You can become world-renowned in five years. It's amazing what you can accomplish in five years if you put your head down and keep knocking over those little dominoes every day. So that would be the thing I want people to remember, that anything is possible for them in as little as five years. So why not sit down, take a look at where they want to go someday, and at least say, well, based on where I want my life to go someday, here's where I think I need to be in five years to feel like I'm absolutely on track for the big things in my life and start using that as your compass, right? If it's not leading you towards that, if you want to do the full goal setting to the now, awesome. But at the very least, have that tangible and with you so you have a compass direction to be going towards that place where anything is possible for your life. Oh, such a good final thought. I knew you'd come through. I knew it'd be really good. (laughs) Jay, it has been so much fun talking with you. I absolutely loved the book. I recommend it to all of my students. And if you're listening, go grab the book. We're going to link to it in the show notes. Listen to it on Audible, which you guys know I do all the time. So Jay and his partner have been on my walks with me for many, many days now. So beyond getting your book, where can people find out more about you? Pretty much everything is at our website, theonething.com. So it's the the one thing with the number one.com. And we've got our our own online courses there around time blocking and goal setting retreats, lots of free resources. There's like a kick-ass guide to better goal setting, all kinds of tools, even a tool I believe for helping you walk through the exercise of doing your first goal setting to the now. So we kind of put everything there that people need all under one roof. Perfect. And I'll link to it in the show notes for sure. Jay, thanks again for being here. I hope that we get to talk again in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jay as much as I have. It was really fun at the end when I stopped recording. He said, hey, Amy, if you ever come to Austin, make sure you let me know and we'll get together. And I said, well, I'm coming in just a few months. And he said, well, then I'm taking you to the best breakfast tacos in town. Like breakfast tacos. I'm a Cali girl. Like we know breakfast burritos, but I do not know breakfast tacos. If you're from Austin, I guess you know this is a thing. I've never heard about it, but Hobie's coming with me and I think he's going to love this. So I'll report back on those Austin breakfast tacos and tell you what I think. Okay, guys, thanks so much. And if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, make sure you do so, whether you listen to it in iTunes or someplace else, because we're in a lot of different places with our podcast. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. I can't wait to connect with you again, same time, same place next week. Bye for now.